0: So, I'm Jake Wade, uh, here with Jack von Riesman doing our senior project. <laughs> as you can tell in the school, um...
1: They got us back somehow.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, and we, this, this is, uh, our third episode, technically second in the way we're recording it, uh, about the French Revolution. Alright. And we're here with Mr. Comics as well. Yeah, I'm just yeah. excited
2: to be here as a guest, uh, listener, speaker, uh, and, uh, hopefully have a lot of fun talked about a lot of bloodshed it'll be well, yeah. interesting to see if he's the best guest star because we got tom bach yeah we, coming gotta on come, we got another
0: one soon I,
2: I'm, I'm excited to hear about the legendary tom bach yeah uh, have
0: you
1: not never met tom bach i have not no tom bach on um, all five foot eight of him
0: he's an interesting man up to five ten. he's an interesting man for sure all right.
1: so french revolution in our last episode we talked about the american revolution and how it kind of demonstrated the um real-world application and principles yeah. of Enlightenment thinking and natural rights and liberty. And the French Revolution takes a lot from that, as a lot of high, um, no- noble Frenchmen, such as Marquis de Lafayette, they went to America, they helped fight in the American Revolution. They saw first hand experiences of the validity of these ideals and how they could be applied in the real world, and, built, and with the momentum coming from the Enlightenment, Coming back to France, it laid the foundations for a revolution of ideas, but that revolution also immediately took form in an economic crisis because of Louis the Fourteenth's poor economic decisions. If yeah. you would like to talk about
0: that, Absolutely, Louis the Fourteenth. Um, Sixteenth, my bad. Sixteenth. Uh, well, I started with Fourteenth, and then kind of. Well, spit it's part of French history. Yeah. Exactly. Poor yeah. Government um, you know. His military spending was in theory right it was you know pretty um, he had a clear plan of what he wanted to do. The issue came when you know all of Europe allies against him to stop him from doing what he wanted to do and you know, at that point, any smart person would probably say, "Okay, let's reel it back a little bit, and that's not really what he did and and that's not also what his sons did um, which kind of spitballs into this crisis um, not only of kind of economics in general but um, more specifically in the high rising prices of commodities um, you know especially especially bread is the one that um, is talked about um, which you know you can piss off nobles but once you do it to 90 percent of your population then you're really that's where your problems are going to start to come in
1: like james the first pissing off all of products and Parliament. Exactly, I mean. exactly. One of, one of my favorites
2: is, um, I, I gave you guys uh, Brenton's theory of revolution, yeah. but uh, in that initial phase, he often talks about the flight of the elites and that you, know, you can be the leader and if you have a, a bureaucracy underneath you that's willing to play the game, then you can probably support a, a pretty despotic government, but when the elites start jumping to a new ship, you know, like many of these French nobles who become enlightened guys, mm-hmm. um, you, know, you no longer have the apparatus. Um, you know, same thing with you know, Parliament moving away from the king in the English Civil War or you know, even you know, many of the mercantile and rich farmers who are going to break away in England. You know? um, this man is losing money, he's losing intellectually, and he's losing his support staff yeah. all at the same
1: time. And with his support staff, that brings us to the topic of what French society was structured like at this time. And one common theme in France is you can see the reminiscence of feudalism very much so with the three estates, and at the top was the first estate. They were the clergy, as is all the church members. They make up less than one percent of the twenty-six million French population at this time period, and they were exempt from taxes, although they did pay just yeah. a donation. Exactly. might you say? But they were very wealthy with their own churches and their own lands produce, and the next uh, estate was the Second estate, they're really clever with their names. And this was the nobility, but the nobility much like the first estate was exempt from paying the, ta- uh, the chief French tax, the taille, which was a tax on land. But the nobility, unlike the first estate, well, like the first estate, it was very um, separated in the difference between the ranks of nobility, where you have higher up nobles, uh, nobles of the sword who descend from nobility from mm-hmm. the feudal ages. And then you have nobles of the robe who earn their nobility status through a government service, as one might have under Peter the Great's 14 tables. And with this nobility, you have the expansion of these younger lawyers, these more educated bourgeoisie. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, you're (laughs) trying to move up.
0: You're new rich and um, people kind of encountering this lack of social mobility which is going to frustrate that, people. That too. frustrates the third estate
1: yeah. even more who make up 97 yeah. of the rest of the population. They only own 40% of the land. They're they are responsible for all the tax base at this current yeah. time, paying the tally. And they just don't have the rights and the privileges that the first and second estates do simply based off their bloodline. And you'll see in the third estate, they're, made, they're compromised not only with peasants And poor farmers, but also um, skilled artisans, merchants, and lawyers too, who make up local parliaments and local government. And they're just angered because they don't have rights and that they should be entitled to. Monarchy. Monarchy is not doing too good at this time. Nobility trying to take the monarchy.
0: Yeah, and I think it's also important um, to note that these states have to be called by the king. Like, they're not... um, an independent uh they're not as independent as a parliament or or as a congress um they're completely dependent on the king for to use any of their power and i think i believe it was louis the 14th one of his dying um pieces of advice to his son was to just do not call the Estates general like whatever you do don't do it and he did it and obviously it went extremely poorly well he
1: did it and i think doing calling the estate general recognizes their right to like have Legitimacy. It legitimizes their right to have consent to be taxed. Yeah. But the estate general, besides messing with Louis, also created a lot of conflict between the three different estates for voting rights. As uh, each – the first estate and the second estate in the estate general got 300 members each. The second estate got 600. So, but – so, like, the second estate should, in essence, have equal rights voting-wise – if we're just doing this as a strict numerical democracy, yeah. however, there's a big conflict in voting by head where each estate votes for what they want, and that's one vote, so it's out of three votes in total, and the third estate can easily get outclassed by the nobility and the first estate who would both want to remain untaxed and keep their special privileges. Yeah. So one of the things
2: I know we're gonna talk about is why this revolution goes wrong, mm-hmm. but I think you know, Jake hits on an interesting point about the state's general not being called for almost 100 years. Um, Because I think about England, and as much as the English Bill of Rights is that big foundational document, you really have the Triennial Act and the Petition of Right and the Habeas Corpus Act and Magna Carta. And, you know, the king and parliament are fighting, and parliament sort of chips away slowly at the king's power. Whereas here it's almost like, you know like a child's temper tantrum like it's been held it's been held it's been held it's been held so unlike england which has kind of slowly allowed the lawyers in and slowly allowed the you know um the system to maybe give a little less power to the clerical authorities and stuff you know this is now like a powder keg right all of this has built up in a way where you know england has kind of almost like a what do you call it like a steam valve let a little bit of it out each you know every 20 years they kind of expand a little bit um, and so of course, you know, when we get to the tennis court oath, we are going to have an explosion of, of epic proportions. Yeah.
0: And I think that's also kind of something that sets England, um, you know, culturally and politically apart from the rest of Europe where they have this kind of conservative, um, gradual acceptance of liberal ideas kind of ingrained in the way that they do things. And I, it's still something that is prevalent yeah. there today.
1: I guess similarly to like America and England, you should have England being its own island separate from... Europe and then America it's its own island separate from England and you can see like how both these revolutions they start because of this separation has allowed them to form their own identity in a way absolutely with the American identity and the English identity even though they're both heavily have a lot in common
0: yeah and that's I'm sure we'll get into it later but I think that's another thing that can be um, cited I guess as a reason for this revolution to go poorly is that there are threats outside more immediate threats to France that are not there for America, and certainly are not there for um, the British Isles at the time. So I think they have much more of a sense of urgency to establish, um, you know, Powers. this haphazard government. Um, emergency government. Exactly. Kind
1: of thing. Like Rome, kind of reminds me of Rome with like having having emergency government where you have yeah. the, in the time of war. It would I think they would give up like the Senate would give up rights to yeah. one of the two consuls to the dictator. you right. make him a dictator and he would be in charge of defending Rome. And that happened... Who was the one? It wasn't Caesar. It was someone else. Get, I think it was Scipio. Afri- it was against Carthage, I think, the first time.
2: Well, I mean, the the best one or the classic one is yeah. Cincinnati, you know, Cincinnati. Yeah, Cincinnati. Yeah. And, and he goes all the way back to very early Rome. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then you have, you're right, you have Scipio Africanus or you have Sulla or, you know, some of the quasi-dictators too. Um, you know, one thing that... Um, you guys kind of mentioned that I, I think is interesting about this. This reminds me of, I think, more forward, you know, some of the more you know, the Russian Revolution, we need emergency powers. Yeah. You know, um, this excuse of outside force to allow a, a suspension of, of habeas corpus is certainly one of the, the dangerous parts of this revolution. Um, the other thing that's worth mentioning is the French Revolution is happening, and people know that the American Revolution has happened. People know that the English Revolution has happened. So I think it's important and we didn't talk about this all that much yeah. in the class, but to understand that when this revolution starts, everyone assumes that it's going to be like the English yeah. Revolution, it's gonna be like the American Revolution. And they go down the same steps. And then somehow they get off track. Um so why don't we move that? Yeah. You know, seventeen eighty nine, tennis court oath. Let's let's go seventeen eighty nine to seventeen ninety one. Let's talk about the, you know, first well, yeah. two years here. Seventeen
1: eighty nine, the big the big thing is our The third estate, they're angry at this lack of perceived representation in government. And what happens is they declare themselves to be a national assembly, and they will not stop until they draft a new constitution for a new France. And the first and second estate, they go back after three days to go in, do their business work. They're locked out, so they go to a tennis court oath, where they vow they won't stop until they create a new constitution, I believe, at the tennis court. And that's like the first steps for drafting a constitution. But it's kind of like auction. But the king, of course, the king, he's got to see his powers be reduced, diminished. Mm. Most people in power, they will not stand for this. He brings troops into France, and it kind of seems like the Third Estate, they're going to fail in drafting this with the, with the king bringing his troops. But then on the, the exact date is July 14th. I think it's the storming of the Bastille. Mm-hmm. Is when the commoners they see the king, they see him bringing troops and they storm the Bastille, which is where the armor was. And do they burn it? They tear they it just, down brick yeah. by brick, and they sell the bricks
2: uh, as souvenirs, which I think is just so. Like I want to find one
1: of those because like some French family probably still has like a Bastille yeah. brick. And you know, I think to so go back to our. Um, connecting connections to previous revolutions. In the American Revolution, like Louis the Sixteenth here, he's kind of trying to serve to intimidate and like show that he's in charge. Just similar to like the proclamation of 1763 and the Quarter yeah. Act, especially where you're allowed to bring British soldiers. It's like used to intimidate the revolutions to show the the colonists that he's in charge, that England is still in charge. And it's just interesting how all these revolutions
0: Yeah, and I think even if you want to go even deeper is that the first place that the French attack um, is like an arms depot, I guess, and uh, one of the first, um, you know, major victories of the American Revolution was Benedict Arnold's taking of Fort Ticonderoga where he takes, you know, uh, cannons and what have you to uh, Bunker Hill. So I think, I mean, there's a very clear pattern that the French are trying to follow. And I think it's also... Funny to note that, um, you know, George Washington, as great a man as he is, is just steeped in hypocrisy here because he wants to avoid his entangling alliances, but unless they're helping him get independence, because then alliances are great. And then he he doesn't really want to reciprocate for uh, the French here. But they are trying to follow in his footsteps, you know, very hard. What do you
2: think would have happened? I mean, you know, you have that Adams-Jefferson, you know, what should we do? And, you know, we, we essentially stay out of what turns out to be a
1: bloodbath. Yeah. Like, what if we didn't? You know, what, how do you think that would have affected us as a nation? If, it depends, I think it depends on heavily which side we decide to take in the conflict. Because I think if we took France and this French side. Yeah. And we see this later on, too, with trading with England. England, even though we kind of just fought revolution with them, mm-hmm. they were our main economic partner. Mm-hmm. And when Jefferson put the embargo on England and, 1808 or yep. sometime uh, around then, yeah. because of the impressment, yep. the American economy just went tanked. It tanked it's horribly. Bad. It went from hundred million exports and to like twenty million. His,
0: one of his last acts as president was to repeal that because it was it was so bad. <laughs> <Working>. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and I think if we like if we took the French side and still try to support the French Revolution, yeah. something like that probably would have happened with England, especially later on when they were fighting. Well, yeah, it, it culminates
0: I mean, in the War of 1812. Um, which is, you know, I, I don't think that that, it's just another, I guess, um, later down the road effect of the French Revolution and really Napoleon, but, you know, um, it's just interesting how even when this, when America tries so hard to stay out of it, they get tied, they get brought into it.
1: Well, it's not not our fault French French coming to our shores yeah, and true. citizens and they're trying to recruit. Yeah. South Carolinians and <laughs> exactly. sailors being taken on the high seas. Yeah. I don't remember who the
2: philosopher it was, but it's uh, when France sneezes, uh, the rest of the world catches cold or something like that. <laughs> you know, there's been a long history of what, what France is doing, having sort of these rippling effects everywhere else. How, how do things start to go wrong? Because things seem to be on track here. We've got a bunch of educated lawyers. We also have people who are crossing the lines. You know guys like Marquis de Lafayette from the Nobles who are fighting for constitutional monarchy, uh, Abbe Sayis, who's a priest saying what is the Third Estate. Well, so you know this looks like it's going well. Declaration of Rights of Man gets published in 1791.
1: Uh, why why doesn't this just turn into the U.S. Constitution and everything's great? Well, I think one of the key things that separates um, the like the the French Revolution from the American Revolution is when America is forming a constitution the majority of the people who were in the revolution, who um, who wrote the Declaration yep. of Independence, <coughs> who wrote all these like the Federalist Papers and all these key American political documents, they were allowed to serve in government after writings. <coughs> but in France, these educated lawyers, these educated these educated bourgeoisie who were in the lower state, there was a provision in the constitution that they will not serve in the next step of the French Revolution, which was the National Assembly. <coughs> after, no, the Legislative Assembly, so yep. in the National Assembly. But they would not be allowed to serve in office, so they would pretty much, much like Cincinnatus, would come in, save Rome, mm-hmm. and just go back home. They would come in, write the Declaration, write the Constitution. Yeah, well, and home. the Declaration is yeah, the Constitution,
2: yeah. so, I mean, to that end, you are correct. Um, so what? what's so bad about that? I mean, that's supposed to prevent abuse of power, right? Much like Washington not running yeah. for a third term. Like, this is supposed to be a good thing.
0: Yeah, well, on paper, it's a good thing, because... Um, You know they're trying to avoid um, this pit of despotism that they fall into for so long with the king Um, but it leaves the people that it leaves to serve in their government um, are not people that you want in your government and especially um, you know the unity that arises from uh, radical groups is something that you don't see in the American Revolution because um, in the American Revolution there's you know, countless different groups of, of people with different ideas on how the new government should be set up, or, or there's, you know, you have loyalists, and you, and you have your extreme uh, sons of liberty, and then you have people caught in the middle that kind of just, you know, want to farm, and then uh, you have federalists later down the road, and anti-federalists, and, and um, democratic republicans, whatever.
2: Um, but they don't shop yet. They, they each don't kill
0: each life. other, exactly. And they, could, they have... Um, the way that the government is set up is one that they can all um, participate, in. and that was I forget which paper it was by Madison, maybe fifty-one, maybe, um, and he talks about you know competing factions and how eventually they cancel each other out and we have a coherent government, uh, and that's you that is lost in the French Revolution because and the cream of the crop, their entire um, you know backbone of this Constitution, uh, the people who wrote it, are completely taken out of the equation. And what's left is, you know, I think you said in class, your B-team. Yep. Yeah. And,
2: and that factionalism, I think, is, is an interesting one. You know, Washington doesn't want political parties no. because, you know, they end up leading to civil war, mm-hmm. in his opinion. And, you know, he's looking back to ancient Greece yeah. and, and seeing, you know, the danger of factionalism <clears throat> there. but. You know, I think the other thing that I brought up, and I I, I don't know, maybe I'm not a guest speaker. Maybe I'm just Brenton's theory of revolution. (laughs) Um, But factions have it easy. Factions can give you simple answers. They're not in power, so they can criticize whatever the people in power are doing. You know, And imagine that you had a huge financial crisis, and now you're a new government, and you still have that financial crisis. It hasn't gone away, and you have less taxes, less tools, so of course the first few years are going to be a disaster, right? Because you're not capable of problem. But then you got your Jacobins, you yeah. got your Bolsheviks, you got yeah. your whatever that radical faction is, who can exploit the <clears throat> incompetence of the new provisional government and create this sort of glittering utopia, <clears throat> right? Like you know, oh, we don't need to compromise. If we just seize control, these
1: things will be better, right? Yeah, and I also like to point out, like. One thing i think is interesting with the french revolution is the king he tries to escape and like he doesn't want to be here and deal with his country He wants to go hide in versailles but uh the the women I, it's another historical victory i would guess for women is like in the french revolution and the russian revolution they really have a big say with the the, the petrograd march and the russian revolution and the women who stopped louis from escaping paris from escaping Fran- um paris to versailles making him go back to paris This also sets him apart from, like, Washington, because Washington was there every step of the way leading. He was in Valley Forge. He was in charge of the Constitutional Convention. And then even in the English Civil War, Cromwell, he led everything. He didn't leave. He was, even though he turned into kind of a tyrant, he would always be there and with James II, too. Well, that certainly prevented factionalism, right? Like, why
2: were there not radical factions in England? Well, one, you could argue Cromwell was. Or, or you could certainly say that, you know, we talked about the Putney debates yeah. in class and how there really were a lot of different factions, but as long as Cromwell controlled the army, he could keep it yeah. in check, you know. And, and think about that. You got Washington, you got Cromwell, you got Napoleon, you know, that eventually some sort of father figure needs to come in and, and control these things. Um, it, it's funny you bring up the women, um, Jack, because the to me, one of the great tragedies of revolution is how fooled women get you know they, they actively enjoy the revolution in the beginning but by the end they've they've actually they're in a bit in a worse position you know olympia de Gouge gets executed you know um despite being you know basically a female jacobin um mm-hmm. uh, you know women in the soviet union are constantly you know oh you'll be liberated you'll be liberated but then, when you look at you know life as a woman, you know your reproductive rights are controlled. You know, you, there's no high-ranking women in the Communist Party. You know, it, it, it's it's amazing how quickly misogyny can kind of just override. You know, oh, we'll say that we're liberating women, and then when when the men actually take control, it's mm-hmm. status quo for you. You know, um, the other thing I would mention, guys, is just to think about what happens to some of the moderates. You know, Marquis de Lafayette. Is an interesting example um he's he's fighting for constitutional monarchy and often the radicals can take an event and turn it against the moderates so for instance the radicals march against the king and lafayette quite logically you know shoots them um when they try to storm yet another palace and that becomes the september massacre uh and now lafayette has to flee um uh, and he ends up you know sitting the rest of the war in germany in a german prison basically uh, and he's one of the lucky ones um, you know, But it, it, it's interesting that there's also two revolutions going on here. You know, we don't see that so much in England. We don't see that in America. We've got the revolution of the intellectuals, but we also have in the streets. Yeah. You know, and this to me, uh, if you guys do get to the Russian Revolution, I think is one worth comparing where you have the provisional government <coughs> and then on the streets you have the radicals. You have the, yeah. the, the Soviets or on the streets you have the culottes You know, that's a big problem for the French Revolution because the intellectual peacemakers and the bloodthirsty, let's slit some throats people, you know, they are operating on two different levels. Um, And one of the things that I think about when I think about 2020 is in terms of political revolts. You know, you saw a political revolt for civil rights, but in a lot of ways you saw two tracks of it. You know, you saw the intellectual debate happening and then you had something on the street that was a lot more unsafe in what was happening and and that that separation between the political class and the people is going to be a huge problem for the French revolution.
0: Yeah. I think um a parallel I like to draw between the French revolution and the American revolution at least when um the a, a turn is taken for the worst um is when Robespierre starts to um you know directly violate Um, the rights uh, of the citizens through his committee. Um, And people forget that in John Adams' presidency, he obviously not to the same extent, but he passes the Alien and Sedition Acts, which are, you know, abhorrent to most of the American populace. Um, And it very easily could have kept going down that track. Um, But I think something that the French Revolution does not have is... um, well, the reason that we didn't keep going down that track is because of John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson, I think, his first week in office, he repeals both of them. Uh, and uh, John Marshall, who was the first Chief Justice of uh, the United States of America, his essentially makes it through um, the Marbury Madison decision. He uh, decision. He essentially um, asserts himself or asserts the Supreme Court as up the branch of government that upholds the Constitution above all else. And that is something that the French Revolution lacks, because Robespierre tramples over um, the Declaration of the Rights of Man um, time and time again. Uh, And he, you know, obviously eventually is checked for it when they cut his head off. But um, (laughs) in the moment, uh, he's just allowed to run with it because his, you know, Committee of Public Safety, and that kind of ties back again um, to Cromwell calling himself Lord Protector, like they the use the same rhetoric. But he is allowed to run wild under the, the guise that he is, you know, protecting um, the ultimate liberty and protecting um, and providing safety. Um, ultimate liberty to get your head cut off. Exactly. Yeah. His, his head is liberated from his shoulders.
2: I always find it funny as a teacher, like sometimes I meet teachers who are so <clears throat> blind to, they go, you know, I'm here to make students think for themselves. But sometimes they think wrong, and (laughs) and that's where I'm there to change them. And I'm like, do you understand how oxymoronic that statement is? But in a lot of ways, you know, that's Robespierre. You know, uh, we're here to make the people free, whether they like it or not. (laughs) And, you know, uh, well, I like being a Catholic. I like Sunday. You know, my local priest is a good priest. He he baptized my kids. Well, he's got to die. And worse, (laughs) you've got to die for liking him, right? Um, Why don't we talk about the flaws of the Declaration of Rights of Man? Because I think... You know, what allows Robespierre to come to power is a really important question, Mm -hmm. right? Because so far we're on the right track. We've written the Constitution and then Robespierre is able to do it. One thing I noticed that, you know, you kind of alluded to is there's no checks and balances. You know, this is a document that gives overwhelming authority to the legislature and almost none to the executive and none to the judicial and so the legislative can simply just, anytime the law isn't big enough or expansive enough, they can simply suspend it or rewrite it, and the king isn't going to do anything, yeah. obviously. But neither are the courts, because the courts don't have that power.
1: What, what else? Well, I think the Declaration of Rights, man, one thing that's interesting to note about it, if you read over it, is how um, contradictory it is. One of the declarations is liberty consists in being able to do anything that does not harm another person. And I think once you see the French Revolution, you kind of just look back at this and laugh, like, oh, I am fighting for liberty. And then you're drowning 4,000 yeah. people at Nance. Mm-hmm. Men, women, children. All the children who are very anti-liberty and probably don't really know what it is. Yeah. Counter-revolutionary <laughs> exactly. of people, right? Not and lost. that's the
2: tragedy, because these are real people, right? You know, it, it, it's amazing how people can get themselves in this. Do you want to give
1: that description just, just, just so our listeners have a good feeling of you know, what we're really talking about here? Can you just go back? I was kind of thinking of Tom saying <laughs> you, know, oh, <laughs> yes. you said short sure, people and my mind went on a tangent.
2: Well, I was talking about the killing of children yeah. and priests oh, and stuff. Well, <laughs> you said a... you wanted to get that
1: passage in, so I didn't, <laughs> oh, I didn't know well, if this was the moment. Talk about that passage? Okay. we'll okay. talk okay. About more about the declaration. There's a fun passage about, um, well, just a description of killing people <laughs> that's not fun <laughs> um this is from a. this is a description from a german who saw what happened and it goes whole ranges of houses always the most handsome were burnt the churches covenants and dwellings of the former patricians were in ruins when i came to the guillotine blood of those who had been executed a few hours beforehand was still running in the street i said to a group of sans colettes that it would be decent to clear away all this human blood why should it be cleared one of them said to me it's the blood of aristocrats and rebels the dog should look it up okay oh. <laughs> and well, that's the class
2: warfare right i i you know identifying people by things that they can't control yeah. certainly is a sign of things that are bad you know <clears throat> that's not going to go well when you're identified by your <clears throat> bourgeoisness or your your whiteness or your you know democratness or whatever i mean i think history has shown us that Labeling someone as a class is a first step towards something pretty
1: awful, and I, I think it's just like with like the description, you kind of see this like vivid violence and vivid, um, vivid passion, and it's easy to get lost in the emotion, the passion of fighting and rebel. You forget like you you find like the emotion of like the fun and the passion and the fervor, like in the Crusades, perhaps. You forget that you're killing another person. Yeah. And even more so, you forget that you're killing your neighbor. You're killing your fellow Frenchman.
2: I think it's interesting you bring up passion because the, there is this English-French divide that the, you know, the English and American is about restraining your passions, yeah. right? The Federalist Papers is all about mm-hmm. restraining the passions of the people. Whereas the Declaration of Rights of Man is the embodiment of the spirit of the people. You know, th- this is romanticism. You know, we, we're... Leaving the Enlightenment and we're entering the Romantic period which is about don't trust rationality. Don't restrain yourself Revolution as far as you can a hundred and ten percent and in that document. Yeah, there are these sort of Spiritual quotes
1: that are a little scary And I like you bring up romanticism because that, that reminds me of a philosopher who kind of ties together with the French Revolution like passion and the Enlightenment and that would be Rousseau the social contract and in the social contract his like thesis is everywhere in society, man is born free, but is in change, chains, and that's kind of what the French Revolution is trying to uh, undo, and this is kind of evident in the Declaration of Rights of Man, where one of the declarations is the law is the expression of the general will, and that just allows like the general will, oh, we want to kill everybody to be for liberty just allow it's like your escape clause right? yeah Any, anytime you want to abuse the rights of the people
2: you can just say well the general will <laughs> is necessary that you must be shot so
1: everyone else can benefit well I guess you're right using your, I guess your guillotine went dull to have to resort <laughs> to shooting me but I think just to go back with this Rousseau thing it's another area where the French Revolution goes wrong subjectively compared to the English and the American is because Rousseau is kind of a French philosopher. The French Revolution, much like things are based off nationalities, is influenced by the French Enlightenment thinkers with Rousseau and his general will theory in the social contract, like what should be done for the greater good, while in England you have Locke and his um, natural rights, and that kind of transcends to America.
0: Absolutely, and to go back to um, Mr. Cummings' point about, you know, the measured passion, I think another thing that contributes to that is um, England too, but certainly America's uh, or early the founding fathers um almost obsession with uh, Rome and how um, so much of at the later um uh, Rome was centered around uh you know your marcus aurelius and and Seneca and Cicero and their uh stoicism and their self-control and um you know. Benjamin Franklin was very much a stoic and he he lived that um and he even to his dying days and at the um constitutional convention he was you know well in, I think he was well into his yeah, 80s was, yeah, yeah but um you know he continued um to have pushed these ideas um in, in, into American politics uh and you know they they can really be seen in and, and in more in what he said um, and less so um, in actuality, but he was one of the first people to stand out against slavery in, you know, seventeen ninety one. So um,
1: unfortunately, it took that out of the Declaration of
0: Yeah, that didn't make it in. But that's a um, different topic. Yeah, totally
2: different debate. And on a twisted level, though, there's an example of the pragmatic compromise that kept the country together. Yeah, exactly. You know, the the English realize that even if you're improving things there's still going to be sin out there you know baby steps mm-hmm. that's very Burkean you know. to think about
1: yeah it, with, it certainly yeah. has that English enlightenment to it small steps not total revolution but I, I want to go back to this passion because mm-hmm. there's nothing to incite fervor in a people than a war and this is really easy to see in the French Revolution and all throughout history with the American Revolution with pain inciting that fervor yeah. with a 9-11 this the to invade Iraq and yeah. to enact um, the Patriot Act mm-hmm. and some of these measures, which we'll see later, and in <clears throat> Nazi Germany yeah, and everywhere. But in France, what happens is after the execution of the king in 72, all of Europe. 92. 92. 92, my bad. 1792. All of Europe are kind of like, they're like freaking out. They're yeah. panicking. They're having a bit of a panic attack because if it happened in France, it could easily happen mm-hmm. in another monarchy. Just the transcendent of ideas, like in the Enlightenment. So they form another historical pattern, they form an alliance to try to restore um, the Bourbon dynasty, yep. a Bourbon monarch on the French throne. But this is when uh, the Committee of Public Safety and Robespierre, that, that kind of gets its power because they're like, like Rome's dictator, we need someone to lead an army because they got beat previously before in 91. <clears throat> but in 93, they have a draft where they draft pretty much any able-bodied young man to fight in the war, <coughs> and they just, they absolutely destroy everybody, know yeah. <laughs> how else to put it. It's kind of shocking to think. Well, and ironically, it's
2: a very Roman-inspired man who eventually will, will reform that army into something incredibly deadly. I mean, Napoleon, you know, Napoleon looks to Rome, and perhaps, <coughs> you know, the Napoleonic Code is not our purview here, but once again, we see yeah. that sort of compromise, stoicism, stuff like that. Um, you know, one thing, Jake, you, you talked about how Roman the Americans were, how Greek this is. Yeah, you know, this, this thinks in absolutes. You know? It's very draconian to think mm-hmm. about, like, with Robespierre. Yeah. And, and I, you know, once again, I'll bring up another philosopher, Nassim Taleb, who says, there's really only one argument, Greece versus Rome. You yeah. know, do we think in absolute purity, a French Revolution style, or do we think in pragmatic empiricism, a Roman style? Um, I've got to wrap up. So what I would say is, you know, Um, what's our takeaway here and I'll give you sort of an example like one of the things I would say is you cannot have liberty by violating the liberty of others you know and the I was using the UN Declaration of Human Rights and article 30 it 29 articles about all the freedoms people should have article 30 says you cannot violate anyone's freedom to achieve these other freedoms And it's almost like the opposite of that general will, where it says, hey, these are all the freedoms people should have, but guess what? You can't be a giant terrorist and kill everyone in the name of it. So I I like to think we've learned a little bit from that, that the, you know, one of the hard parts of a revolution is how do you protect the rights of people while trying to extend them. But the classic one is my liberty only goes as far as your nose. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's my lesson of the French Revolution is why does it go wrong? There's a lot of reasons. But one is once you start to violate liberty in the name of liberty, yeah, you're heading down a dangerous path. Um, whichever one of you guys has a, a lesson, because I don't want to put you on the spot, but what, what do you guys think?
0: You can go ahead. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say I think one key takeaway from the French Revolution is uh unchained and unchecked emotion and passion that just kind of that kind of inspired Rose Pierre with his. I will take your liberty to defend our liberty away. And I think uh, this lack of moderation as well that we see in the French Revolution, that kind of is another thing that separates it from the American Revolution because the French Revolution went from zero to 100 really quick and the Declaration of Rights of Man allow you to go over 100, one might say, <laughs> in defending liberty. While in the American Constitution, they really form it to create a a kind of equal balance of checks and balances so, you're not too free where you know not like, it's like the Franz Kafka, we are lost because we're too free, that kind of quote. Mm. It's like the French Revolution, they are lost because they're too, they're too in love with liberty and too much trying to find us. but with, like, the American Revolution, they're in love with the idea of liberty, but they're more pragmatic. Yeah. And that's Edmund Burke right there, describing why he supported one revolution,
2: but one against the other.
0: I think my biggest takeaway is probably that, um, you know, not to abandon... Uh, independent and free thought. Um, And that is what I think the ultimate downfall of the French Revolution is, is that um, people allowed themselves to be swept up uh, into, you know, rose sensationalism. And um, I think this is something that you can see in almost any... you know, human atrocity that has been committed, you can definitely see it in, um, you know, Stalinist Russia, you can see it in um, Hitler's Germany, where people allow themselves to be swept up uh, in this, you know, wave of populism for the cause, um, and ultimately they dehumanize um, their neighbors, their countrymen, uh, and horrible, horrible things um, happen as a result of that. Extreme
1: problems lead to extreme solutions. Exactly. But we'll get more to that in our next episode where we talk about fascism and uh communist authoritarianism Oh yeah.
0: So. That should be a good one. So 1930s. Uh, yeah, big jump All right.